I was in a very musical family with five kids, and it was right after watching the Beatles as neighborhood girls got on the phone, what about an all-girl band? We were the earliest female group that rocked hard, didn't play like girls, like tinky tinky, you know. Imagine the influence of Detroit. My brother had set up Mickey Mouse coming in. An offer was made that he wanted just her. Wow! It devastated them, and it devastated me. I didn't know anybody, it didn't go anywhere. It was really, really lonely. Then I would say Susie Quattro came out of the ashes. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Pekovich, and this is episode number 264. Releasing in Australian cinemas on the 20th of November is Suzy Q, a documentary that delves into the life and legacy of rock queen Suzy Quattro, a thoroughly researched and entertaining rock doc that explores all facets of the Suzy Quattro story. The film is also a four and a half year labor of love for its director, Liam Formosa who joins me now on the podcast. Liam, I thank you very much for joining me today. No, thanks for having me, Matthew. Cheers. So I guess my first question is, when you look at the legacy of Susie Cottero, we're talking about over 55 million albums, uh, countless worldwide hits for decades, um, the queen of rock music, yet your documentary, Susie Q, is the first one to be made about her. Um, how shocked were you about that fact, and why did you take it upon yourself to change that? Um, well, I actually always wanted to do uh, a music documentary. I'd done a number of films, but, you know, being a musician, it was kind of my first love. So I was looking around for a suitable subject to, to tackle it. I was speaking to a, a friend who would said, you know, no one's ever done a doco on Susie Quattro. And I was like, no, nah, that's not true. And uh, so I jumped on Google and did a bit of a search and realized it, it was true that uh, no one had actually done one. And I was shocked. I was like, but she's a legend. She's an icon. How could no one have made a doco? Um, and I did further research and found out that uh, someone had attempted one in L.A. about, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago, but mm-hmm. uh, it had stalled and uh, hadn't uh, been finished. Um, and I assumed that was because they'd probably hit that wall of licensing fees because it is an expensive exercise to, to do sort of a comprehensive music doco. I mean, music and uh, footage licensing is, is quite phenomenal. Um, so I knew I had a challenge ahead of me in terms of actually, you know, uh, approaching this. So I reached out to a friend, uh, Tate Brady, who was a producer, um, and I knew he was a bit of a rocker at heart as well. Uh, so I sort of went over to his place and said, hey, look, I've, I've actually uh, been talking to Susie Quattro and I pitched her this idea, um, you, you know, to make a, a comprehensive doco about her life. And she was actually really enthusiastic. She was completely up for it and, and said, look, you know, so long as it's truthful, I am on board. Yeah. And so with that in mind, Tate said, yep, that sounds great. And we knew it was daunting and we knew the challenges ahead. But we just thought it was too good a story not to cover and do. Um, and, you know, hence why it took, you know, four and a half years. Uh, you know, two, two years was obviously work with filming and research and interviews and traveling around. But then you had like almost 12 months of actually chasing up licensing and publishing. And, you know, you had to actually account and pay for every photograph that appears in the documentary. Uh, so that was actually a very long-winded process and, you know, at times frustrating. Uh, but we actually managed to get it across the line. 
You mentioned before you made your pitch to Susie. Whenabouts did you meet her? Um, I hadn't met her prior to that. So um, through a mutual friend, I had actually reached out to her and sort of said, hey, Susie, um, you know, this is what I have in mind. Would you care to Skype and discuss? Which she did. So we had actually had a couple of Skype sessions. But uh, the first one, I, I sort of said, look, straight off the bat, I have to admit, I'm not a fan. Mm. And she was a bit shocked. And I went, you know, I don't mean I don't like you. I really do like you. I actually really uh, admire your career. But I'm a product of the 80s. So I asked, you know, I was too young to really um, catch, you know, your, your big rise in the 70s. So you're always on my radar. But um, I was never fully aware of your story. Um, and she really liked that because she didn't want somebody who was a, you know, a fawning fan to do some big puff piece of adulation. She yeah. wanted someone who was ob objective, yeah. somebody who would actually approach it, you know, very objectively and actually get to the, the, the heart of the story and, and be, you know, very truthful. Because she, uh, she, 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 didn't, she didn't mind it if it was embarrassing at times or cringy at times or confronting at times. Um, you know, our agreed mantra from the beginning was, as long as it's truthful. So four and a half years working on a project. You, so you began around the time that Susie had did her big kind of farewell tour, which of course wasn't a farewell tour. She's touring again and she's got a new album, etc. Do you think at that time when she was saying goodbye to the touring game, especially touring Australia, which she'd been here so many times, that she might have seen the documentary as a chance to really put that final explanation point on her career and really look back and present the legacy the way um, she wanted it to be told? Yeah, I think in part there is some truth to that. You know, I did actually meet her right at that point of the, uh, you know, the final tour, the farewell tour. Um, and I don't know what was going on in her mind, you know, personally, but I think that she saw definitely saw the, the documentary as... Um, as a vehicle, I guess, uh, to do that last hurrah, if you like, to put the full stop on her career. Mm. But um, after sort of going through the process and, and making the doco, and, and we've had screenings, we've had uh, screenings at film festivals, and we had the big premieres in Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane, and the reaction that we got, of that we got uh, for the film, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if she just keeps going well into her 70s yes. and 80s. Yeah. Well, I can't blame her if she did. I mean, just looking, I mean, the new material that she has out there, the stuff that she did with her son, um, it sounds really good. And live performances that I looked at YouTube, they look really spectacular as well. So she definitely still has that spirit and the, the vocal chops are still there. You know, unlike other people from, uh, others from that decade where they kind of, you know, you can kind of see that, uh, you know, in, for many different reasons. I mean, Susie Quatra was never a kind of like alcohol, drugs kind of person. It wasn't that scandal, uh, rock and roll lifestyle behind her. So I think that really helps to keep that longevity. Um, when it comes to the documentary itself, look, I've watched a lot of rock docs, and this one's about as comprehensive a, a documentary as I've seen based on, uh, like, the subject like this. And what really stood out to me was the relationship with her family, especially like her sisters. Um, there, there does seem still to this day a lot of kind of friction there. Was it easy to get them on board considering the kind of strained nature of the, their relationship with Susie? Well, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that she's kind of lived a very, you know, straight and narrow life. She didn't have any sort of raging drug habits or mm. become an alcoholic or, you know, have any sort of tragedy that you know so many people at that level of fame 
um, suffer. Um, because, as you know, most music documentaries are posthumous where the subject has tragically died. Yep. You know, whether in a plane crash or in the bathtub. Um, so, to me, the real challenge was, okay, so what is the story here? Because we're not uh, tackling this from that traditional arc of, you know, tragedy um, and, and sort of retrospectiveness. Um, so I really wanted to, you know, sort of make a great film about her. Um, but what was the direction here? And uh, I thought, okay, I don't want to do something that it mythologizes her. I want to do something that personalizes her. Yeah. And I really wanted to show the real Susie Quattro to people, not not the uh, not the uh, the icon, but the person behind that. I don't think a lot of music documentaries, if any, really do that. Um, so that that was kind of like, okay, this is this is you know my direction with this. And um, so the next step, obviously, was, okay, so what kind of access do I have here? But um, her family are actually really great. Um, so her sisters are lovely. Um, but there is this ongoing tension and resentment in the family that has been there since Susie left home. Because initially they were kind of, uh, they were a music band. They were kind of in the same mold as the Jacksons or the Osmonds. Uh, her band, The Pleasure Seekers, you know, all sisters, um, they really wanted to make it. They wanted to be this kind of family successful group, um, full support of the father, who was a musician himself. Yep. But when Susie made that decision to leave after receiving an offer, a solo contract with Mickey Most, and she left to go to London, I think there was something broken there with the family bond. And because she made it, so big and was so successful I, I suspect they feel a bit they felt left behind on the flip side of that you have also you look at also the impact that her career had on like just at a whole bunch of uh, different music musicians who are legendary in their own right i mean you got joan jett and alice cooper debbie harry sherry curry uh, tina weymouth from talking heads um how did you come up with the list of people you wanted to interview? Is, are these people that were recommended from um, Susie, or or did you kind of like look up um, interviews with these uh, with these artists themselves and saw that they cited her as an influence? Yeah, it was actually both. Um, I'd actually asked Susie, look, you know, just begin this process. Who do you think I should talk to? Um, because I really wanted to have that validation of her peers appear in the documentary and talk about how influential Susie was and what she meant to them. Yep. And surprisingly, that process was really easy because Susie handed me a couple of names because, you know, she's friends with them. And I rang them up and I said, listen, I'm doing this doco. Would you be interested in participating? And every single one put their hand up and said, yep, when do you want me? Because they all knew to a person that uh, she had been unfairly kind of marginalized or forgotten. Yep. Uh, given given her important influence, being you know the first successful female rocker, um, who influenced so many of these bands, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't know that, or they've you know it's been just lost in the, you know over time, and certainly new you know younger people just have no idea who Susie Quattro is. Mm. They have no idea of the impact that she made or the importance that she has. So, um, and also, uh, it was a bit of research on my part, just, you know, looking on Google and reading books and stuff and finding out who was name-checking Susie Quattro yep. and then reaching out to them, like uh, Tina Weymouth and Talking Heads. 
uh, or yeah, Wendy James from Transition Vamp. It was simply reaching out to them and saying, hey, I noticed that you named Chick Suzy Quattro. Would you be interested? And uh, all of them said yes. Was there any guests that you did interview that didn't make the cut? Yeah, I, um, there was a couple of them. And, you know, it's always very hard to decide what stays in and what goes out because you've only got a certain running time. And you have to tell a very tight, comprehensive story that, uh, you know, the narrative carries and makes sense. So, um, unfortunately, I, I had a wonderful interview with Martha Reeves mm. from Arthur and the Vandellas, Dancing the Street fame. Um, and unfortunately, that didn't make the cut to the film, although it's on the bonus features of the DVD. Um, Glenn Matlock from The Sex Pistols, um, which surprises a lot of people that, you know, like that notorious punk band would be saying, hey, we like Susie Quattro. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, Steve Harley from The Cockney Rebels, um, which is also on the DVD as well, uh, didn't make the cut. Um, and they were all fabulous contributions, but uh, as you know, you just you can't have everything, otherwise you'd have a five-hour film. When it comes to Sherry Curry, she actually wrote a song for, the, for your documentary. What was that experience like? <laughs> well, I... Um, I was talking to her because, uh, you know, you go through the process of making a film like this and when you come out the other end, you discover that you, not only have you got these great interviews, but you've actually made really strong friendships with some of these people. And Sheree Curry is just the biggest sweetheart you'd ever want to meet. Um, I have all the time in the world for her and we got along like a house on fire. And while I was visiting, I said, you know, you should write a song about Susie Quattro and we could use it in the film. And she took up the challenge and she said, yep, great idea. And she came back literally maybe a week later and said, I've written this. And I listened to it and I went, oh, that's so good. It's like a, uh, it's, 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 it's um, a lyrical reference to the whole of Susie's career in this wonderful three-minute rock gem, you know. So I said, oh, yeah, we're going to have that and put it in the film. Um Something really interesting about her career is that she's like she's from Detroit, and Detroit has their own sound and, and such. But she really found her sound and her style and her fame in London. And when you consider um, the partnerships she had with producer Michael Most, um, uh, Mark Chapman, who did who was a songwriter, uh, the fact that she was made her kind of claim in the UK. Do you think history kind of sees Susie more as a Detroit musician or a London British rock star? I think, and it's a great question, um, I think, you know, people would view her as being fundamentally British glam rock. Mm. Even though she wasn't a glam rock per se, you know, she wasn't a glam rock, you know, per se. She was, she was in that moment and in that mould of music. Um, I think where the Detroit comes from, or the Detroit sound comes from, is her bass playing. Yeah. Uh, because if you look at her playing bass... She's coming straight from that school of Motown, James Jameson playing. Uh, so that is very obvious when you actually th th think of that and then listen to the record. You go, oh, yeah, that's obvious. That's exactly who she's influenced by. But certainly because she's been forgotten in America or not a lot of people know her in America, you know, she's, all, she's just known and renowned as being a, a British rocker in a way. Do you think that the success that she had in the UK 
in the 70s. That was the reason why so many Australians really took to her as well, so uh, fervently. I mean, do you think Australians were surprised to find that the singer who was doing Can and Can and Devil Gates Dry was actually an American all this time? Do you, like, I don't know historically whether we thought that she was a Brit, considering the band was British, she was big in the British charts. I mean, do you have any historical context in regards to that? Yeah, I, I actually think Australians are quite savvy in their approach to that kind of music because they like authentic rockers. They don't like manufactured, they don't like charlatans, they don't like pretenders. They, they like somebody who is a real ballsy rock and roller who just plays their own instrument and has this great voice. And, and so I think that uh, regardless of the British success, I think Australians would have embraced her regardless anyways. And I think Australia was one of the first to champion her and actually give her that international success. Um, I can't remember the rest of the question. <laughs> well, just in regards to, do you know that where back then when she did make a, when she was a success, did people actually know in Australia that she was an American? Because, you know, she came oh, from the gotcha. UK, etc.? Yeah. Um, I, no, I think most Australians thought she was a British rocker. Mm because she was riding on that sort of wave of British bands like Slade and T-Rex and, you know, Sweet. And so, I, and that sound was quintessentially British. So yeah. I think every person had sort of just assumed that she was a, a British rocker until she told them otherwise. And I think that actually, that revelation surprised and actually delighted a lot of people because it, it infused it with even more authenticity, you know? Oh, wow, she was actually a gritty Detroit rocker you know, playing these glam rock tunes. It's a, it was a great combination. Um, well, narrative thread throughout the film is her struggle to really break into the American market. And to some extent, she did have success there. Um, came more from different kind of uh, mediums, though, TV, etc. How much of that do you think still kind of irks at her, even to this day? I think it's a sore point, absolutely. And justifiably so, given that she's an American native from Detroit. I mean, yeah. it was always her desire to, you know, make it big back home. Regardless of what other territory she was conquering, you know, America was like, that's my home, I've, you know, I've got to be, I've got to make it there. And there were a, a myriad of reasons why that didn't happen. Um, and I think it really, it was very disappointing, uh, disappointing for her, and I think it still remains to be a, a disappointment that she hopes she could remedy somehow, I think. Um, and, you know, making the film as well was our way of trying to address that injustice as well, to mm. bring her to the attention to the American market and say, hang on a minute, I think you've forgotten this little lady over here yep. who changed everything. There was talks of perhaps Susie finally getting the nomination for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Have you heard anything in regards to that? I have, indeed. Um, there is a lot of chatter about it, and uh, a lot of the chatter is now coming from America, too, which is really pleasing and surprising. Because most people who, uh, you know, most people who are really music-savvy or musicians, they know who Susie Quattro is. They know how important she is to the story of rock and roll. So they're kind of waving the flag for her. Um, I think the problem is, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame tends to be a bit of an old boys club. Yeah. And they'll, they'll keep sort of churning up the same hoary old rockers from the 70s, you know. Uh, and here's another blokey band, and here's another blokey band. And whenever they do nominate a, a woman, it's usually very tokenistic. Mm. Um, and it's usually a woman that sold 
you know, millions and millions and millions of albums in America. So, you know, they can nominate and induct the Velvet Underground, who didn't sell anything, but were very influential, but they still haven't inducted Susie Quattro. I usually find as well that when it comes to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it takes a lot of campaigning from other musicians to really kind of push a, a fellow musician to get in there. And just looking at the testimonials from, and I'm just going to name the names again, it's just a who's who of rock legends, Joan Jett, Alice Cooper, Debbie Harry, Sherry Curry. Um, I really do hope that alongside with the documentary, what this documentary can hopefully do as well, that they will also kind of carry the course and try to get her in there. Um, and for everyone else listening, November 20, across Australian cinemas, Susie Q, a documentary delves into the life and legacy of rock queen Susie Quattro. I remember very well the first time I heard Can the Can. I think I might have been 10 years old, so it would have been late 80s, early 90s. And um, great, like, I am I'm I'm, I'm a fan of her music because a lot of stuff that I listen to is kind of like off that era as well. So this is a great documentary, Liam. Congratulations to you. And um, I encourage everyone out there to check it out. And Liam, I thank you very much for your time again today. Thank you so much, Matthew. Been delighted.